Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be together this morning. I'm going to start off with a story as well, Tristan did. I'm going to, I have a different story. So I, I want to rejoice. First of all, uh, trunk or treat went great. We invited the community to come back for the pasta dinner, which was held in this room on Wednesday night. Many of you were there. Uh, several families from our community came, and it was a really lovely event. And uh, we had a lot of conversations. I saw tears uh, being shed. I, we had some good conversations. In the midst of all this great time and great food, thank you to all that, that served that night as well, we heard a loud crash up here on the stage. And uh, we all looked, and, and it was some kids from the community were, were playing, and they destroyed the X of our beautiful sign. Look at this. And in that moment, we all thought, these community people, should we forgive those kids? <laughs> and you just meditate on that. It would be ironic if we didn't forgive those kids for breaking our 70 times 7 sign. Right? As somebody pointed out, 707 is still bigger than 490. So, you know, that's good. Um, and then Vince pointed out that, you know, there's still a, there's still a, a process of healing. So... We, 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 went through, we accelerated the process of healing. Uh, we forgave the kids. We were glad that they were here. Break the signs. We're here. We're here to, to worship God, to uh, proclaim his gospel. Amen? Amen. So every year, this, uh, so we were finishing the, the forgiveness series today, uh, and here we are on the first Sunday of November, and every year, the first Sunday of November is a very emotionally trying time for me. Uh, and that is because this Sunday is a globally, officially recognized day for two causes, two causes, both of which need to be on the forefront of Christians' minds and hearts. The first every year, this Sunday of the year, is National Orphan Sunday, and it is Prayer for the Persecuted Church Sunday. So every year I wonder, these causes are, are both huge to us, should we focus on either of them? Should we focus on both of them? Should we focus on neither of them because we're, we're doing other things? Uh, this, to, this year, this day lands on the finale of our forgiveness series, and so that gives the opportunity to focus a little bit on both of them. Let me say a brief word about both and then tie them into our message today. Orphan Sunday. You know, there are over 150 million orphans in the world. Some of the deepest suffering is not physical pain, but isolation and abandonment. And the world's millions of orphans and foster kids are suffering, and, and they are of primary concern to our Father God, and he has given his church, his heart, and his mission to care for the fatherless, to not leave them as orphans. And praise God, hundreds of thousands of churches around the globe are observing this day and praying for orphans. And it was last year on this day that we officially launched the Father's Heart Ministry here at Community Grace. It is a group of people that assist if you're an adoptive or, or fostering or special needs, kids, families, we want to give our support. And, and if you're considering adopting or fostering, we want to assist you and let, let us know your interest in those things. And we hope to grow in those causes. Now let's consider the other observance of pain and enemies that today is, and that's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Churches today. And so again, all over the globe, churches are praying, and I'm going to ask you to, to join us in prayer for our brothers and sisters 
who are persecuted. In America, Christians are often ridiculed and made fun of and marginalized, increasingly so. That's a level of persecution. In North Korea, if you were in North Korea, uh, you'd have a sentence of life in prison or the death sentence if you were discovered having owning a Bible. In China, Christians are oppressed on a massive scale, assets confiscated, jailed, physically harmed. In hostile parts of the Middle East, Asia, Africa, you risk being kidnapped, hacked to death or shot to death. It's a way of life. They estimate one in eight Christians in the world are facing severe persecution. I'd like to draw our attention to, you know, we're isolated. We're isolated from these these common things. But these, this, is, this is our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity that today affords and pray for them. I, I had a missionary friend that was kidnapped and he's been missing for four years now um, in, in uh, Niger. And over those years, we prayed for him. We prayed for his witness. We prayed for his kidnappers. Uh, these things are real and, and really hard, and, and we just don't think about them very often. So this is a great opportunity to bring to mind. I want to draw attention to the Fulani people group, a people group that God is calling our church to, to have a focus on. As reported on persecution.org, in Nigeria alone, Fulani militants, they're a restless people group, and they have militants that have been attacking Christian communities and stealing their farmland for years. Over between two and three million far, Christian farmers have had their, their land stolen by the Fulani militants, and they have killed over 50 to 70,000 Christians. Listen to a brother describe the situation just last month with a one minute video. And the Fulani terrorists, they are inside Zangwankata town. That is where they always appear, I mean, prepare themselves to go out and attack the villagers around, the Christian village, village, villages. Then they will come back and stay in the town. And the security that we are asked to take care of that environment, they know that quite all right. And the reason is most of the securities there mostly are Muslims because they were not allowed to send a Christian security around that place in order to take good care of their Muslim brothers. So that is the problem that Christians are facing today. No, they are protecting the, the Muslims and the Fulani that are in Zango, Katap, local government, or in Zango town itself. Then, leaving our people in the, in the mercy hands of God. And these hate men and the Fulanis, they will go into the villages and fight and fight and come out. We will never see security until after a day or two days, when they have finished everything, killing people, burning houses, then they'll march out. This is, this is the reality of many of our brothers and sisters on a regular basis. Would you just pray for them today? God answers our prayers. It is powerful. But see, the Fulani militants who kill Christians, they don't need our hatred. They need Jesus' love and the gospel of his salvation. And that's why we are prayerfully adopting the Fulani people group as a mission focus and why Mike and Myra Taylor, our, our missionaries here that we commissioned last Sunday, they're arriving on the ground there in Central African Republic today as we speak, Lord willing to reach the Fulani people with the good news of the gospel. That's what ends the hate, is Jesus. 
Also pictured here is last week our denomination, the Caris Fellowship, launched its, its annual November Daily Global Prayer Walk. We announced that, and many of you have signed up to receive those daily emails. I want to encourage you to do that and participate. Today I got up this morning, and guess what country is the focus of today? But Central African Republic, where God has led this church to have a heart where the tailors are arriving today, and, and we hope to be bringing the Fulani people the gospel. See, our human flesh wants to call them. They, they're killing Christians. We, they're persecuting the church. Um, we want to call people enemies who abandon us, abuse us, betray us, persecute us, murder us. We want to hate them and, and call them our enemies. In fleshly terms, they are, but Jesus calls us to leave the flesh behind and think in spiritual terms now as we follow him with the new nature that he's given us in the, in the Holy Spirit that empowers us. We're not able to do this humanly. We're only able to, to have that kind of attitude towards our enemies because of our union in Christ. If you don't have that, then I'm not talking to you. It's impossible. But we do have union in Christ, and through his Holy Spirit, Jesus calls us to this. So we're going to talk about this today as we conclude our forgiveness series. We've been building up to a crescendo this week, I mean, Jesus really calls us to do hard things, but he gives us a lot of instruction, wisdom, power, promise all along the way. And today, I believe God's going to bring us to the climax. He's been crescendoing in this forgiveness series all the way up to here, the, the greatest climax of Jesus' forgiveness, and that is to love our enemies. And we can, and it's good, and it's what the world needs, and it's our calling. So let's talk about it today. If you don't have your uh, sermon notes, Chris is there to put one in your hands. If you raise your hand and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, if you haven't already. And I'm going to start with the context of our passage today. The context is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. How many of you have heard of the Sermon on the Mount? All right, we've heard of that. It's known as the greatest sermon of all time. And if you study it, you don't disagree it's Matthew chapters 5 through 7, three chapters. We're just going to look at a portion of it today. This is where we arrive at the pinnacle here of our forgiveness series today. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the title of the sermon is, Love Your Enemies. Three words. Let's meditate on those three words for a little bit. You know, you need to learn the act of Christian meditation and it's different than New Age meditation. One, one pra practice of Christian meditation is to, is to look at each word and really meditate on each word, the meaning and the implications, what God is saying to you through it. So let's just do that right now, just, in a, just for a moment. Take those three words, meditate on each of them. First, we'll start with the word love. The Bible uses two different words for love. The first is phileo, which is the word for brotherly love. That's the emotional love. Guess what? That's not the love Jesus is talking about here. He doesn't use that word. We're not talking about an emotional response. We know what our emotions want to do. He uses the word agape, agape love. Agape love is the love of the choice. We choose to love, agape love. So love, think, love chooses, what does it choose? It chooses to be selfless. It chooses to make sacrifices. This is the term Jesus uses here. So we are choosing 
to selflessly love. Love what? Your enemies. Meditate on that word, your. It's not some abstract enemies, not someone else's enemies. Your enemies. And then how about that last word, enemies? Who are your enemies? Picture them. Some may hit you, lie about you. Some may go to a rival school or be bullies in your school. Some may make your life miserable at work like it's their calling in life. Some may call your beliefs evil. Some may be sitting in this room. Okay, if you were having a good day, I'm sorry, I just ruined it for you. <laughs> Making you think of your enemies. But God's word is going is to make it better here. In Matthew 5 through 7, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus, here's the context, Jesus is preaching to a large crowd with his disciples near, confronting the religious leaders of the day who had distorted God's word so badly, he is exposing their legalism and their twisting of God's law. And before our passage today, which begins in, in verse 43, if you look up starting in verse 21, if you just kind of scan, you see Jesus, you see a series of five paragraphs where Jesus is addressing different issues, and you see the words, you have heard it was said, but I say, he, say, he says this six times, going after six twisting, distortioning of, of, distortioning of God's law. See, the Pharisees had created these ingenious ways to reinterpret God's law so that whatever they really wanted to do, and however they wanted to feel and behave, they could. And they felt that they were justified, and then they taught others to do the same. So in verse 21, you see the first of those six, they found clever ways to harder bitterness and hatred toward their neighbor, as long as they weren't murdering anyone. I'm not murdering anybody, so I can hold as much hatred and bitterness as I want. So Jesus says there, but I say, if you remain angry at a brother, you are guilty of murder. Second was, as long as they didn't commit adultery, they could lust all they wanted. But of course, we know what Jesus said there. He said, but I say, he who lusts after a woman has committed adultery already with her in his heart. If your hand makes you sin, cut it off, he says. And then he addresses divorce and swearing oaths and getting revenge. And he's building up to this crescendo again, to a climax here in his sermon on the mount. Just like we are building up to this crescendo, this climax today, the peak of the message of forgiveness. And I see that he's peaking his sermon right here as he comes to the sixth correction that he gives And now I see, what I see that he's doing with the sixth one that we're going to look at more closely today is I, this is, to me, the climax of where law merges with love. Right here. Love your enemies. Jesus is blowing minds. I think he's probably stirring up a lot right here today as well. That's what he does for his glory, for our good. Let's examine now together the command, the command, love your enemies, is to give God your entire self. 
not holding anything back from him. Give God your entire self by loving your enemies. Like Jesus has each time, he begins with the Old Testament principle. So let's start there. The Old Testament principle that they have distorted. What's the Old Testament principle here? Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love, this phrase, love your enemy, I mean, sorry, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, it had become kind of a slogan then. It's what the Pharisees had taught for, gener- for years, for generations, over the, over the generations. It had become popular like a bumper sticker. You'd almost see that um, on the cars driving around. They didn't have cars back then, but wherever they would put bumper stickers, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It's kind of a nice slogan, right? Yeah. We get to love our, our neighbors and hate our enemies, and they taught that as if that was what God's law said, but you open God's law, it never says that. Let's see what it actually says. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. Here's what, it, here's what they're drawing from this and one other passage we'll look at in just a moment. If you meet your enemy's ox, there's a key word, enemy, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall, what's the law of God? You shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, Lying down under its burden, what do you do? You walk away and laugh. You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. That's God's law. The Pharisees had distorted that. Let's see a little bit more, and then and we'll see how we do the same thing with the Bible, brothers and sisters. That's what our flesh wants to do, to justify what we want to do. Let's look at the Pharisees' distortion. The Pharisees taught that the law said... You should love your neighbor as yourself and hate your enemies. Again, the Bible didn't say that. Let's look at what it actually says, Leviticus 19.18. Here's where they got that and twisted it. It actually says, you shall not take vengeance or do what? Or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God's biggest exclamation point. There's nothing about hate here at all. You should love your neighbor as yourself. That part has always been serious to God. Now, later in Jesus' ministry, of course, the Pharisees came and asked him, well, who is my neighbor? Remember that? And Jesus, when he answered that question, gave one of the most well-known parables of all time, the parable of the good Samaritan. Most of you know that story. In that story, the Samaritans, who were they? They were the most hated people by the Jews. And Jesus told that story and taught that the Samaritans are our neighbor. Everyone's our neighbor. The Jewish leaders were skilled at twisting God's law so they could do whatever they wanted. We do that too. They could hate people, they could get revenge, they just simply redefine the word neighbor. Of course they did. If we can define words however we want, then we can justify whatever we want to do. That's making a God in our own image. And we do that today, and it's a bad idea. Study and worship and follow the, the God of the Bible. So the Pharisees taught to hate your enemy, and that's what the people did. The ancient Roman historian, this is a pagan historian, writes in his history books, Tacitus is his name, he described the Jews as those with hatred toward the human race. They had become known 
to the outside world for their hate. And we have to ask ourselves, does that ever happen to the outside world with Christians? Do they look at us and define us as those who hate the rest of the world? Is that what we want to be known for? Of course not. And this distortion breaks Jesus' heart more than anyone's, and so he confronts it. And that's what we see next in verses 44 through 47. He gives the true interpretation of the law. Here's the true interpretation of God's law. Hear these words. Verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus gives the true heart of God's law. He calls his people to a different set of standards for our relationships. So before we go any further, let's openly and honestly consider this question for ourselves. Who are my enemies? And again, I want you to think, who are they? I have several definitions and scenarios that it could be for you to consider. Dictionary.com defines enemy as a person who feels hatred for, fosters harmful designs against, or engages in antagonistic activities against another, an adversary or unfriendly opponent. So an enemy can be somebody on the opposing side. Another definition is a rival for another's affections. I like that. A rival for another's affections. People who have wronged us or hurt us or disrespected us. People that hated us, and the natural thing to do is to hate them back. So just consider now, who are your enemies that you naturally have a hard time loving? Naturally. And, and I want to propose that there is a, a spectrum of enemies. There's a line. Over here on this side of the spectrum are the more minor enemies, the smaller enemies. I do a lot of emailing. Here's just one example. And sometimes, occasionally, I'll get an email that, hey, I find disrespectful. They've misunderstood what I've said, or they've just been disrespectful to me. And in that moment, blood starts to boil a little bit, right? You're like, man, you feel so offended. And you do it. In that moment, in that moment, they become an enemy. Let's just admit that. On a small scale, I call these micro-enemies. Okay? And, and, and I think that's good. That, that, that sticks. That's very relevant to us all throughout, all throughout the day. There's these micro-enemies, and that's kind of funny, but I don't want to just laugh about it because it is real. This is really real. In that moment, they, they make our blood boil. Uh, further down the spectrum, there are bigger enemies, and that could be like the bully at school and the friend that betrayed you, the pers person at work who lies about you, treats you unfairly makes your life miserable. Okay? Those are enemies. Moving up to the highest end of the, the spectrum are even bigger enemies, like the family member who's abusive to you, and like the person who stole something very dear from you. And you may have these enemies on this end of the spectrum. You may not, but just go to this uncomfortable place with me, okay? Because God's going to meet you there. Because he is. Because this is real life, and he's really interested in your life. 
and he's really powerful. So I want you to think about that. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable. This whole series has been uncomfortable but good. I've heard people say I've hated this series, but, uh, but I love it. And this is a message like that today. In my 19 years in Washington State, we lived uh, just outside the third largest military base in the country and witnessed many military people who we knew and loved struggle hard with this very thing. One such brother's name was Matt. Matt and his wife, Allie, were great friends, and they were fantastic small group leaders. And Allie served on our mission team and had a huge heart to reach Muslims. She was on fire uh, for reaching Muslims. Matt, on the other hand, was a staff sergeant in the Army in 1st Special Forces Group who battled Muslim groups. Two countries, war. And Matt shared with me over the years his struggle with loving these Muslims, his enemies. And he wrote a note to describe it, and I'd like to read that note right now. Again, this is after years of this struggle and a desire to follow Christ. Matt writes, My Christian faith while serving in the military has been truly tested over the last 12 years. With one tour to Iraq and two to Afghanistan, I've seen and experienced a lot of ups and a lot more downs than I care to admit or even care to talk about. For the longest time, I have dealt with a very intense inward battle of hating my enemy instead of loving them like Jesus calls us to. How could I love an enemy when they are killing my fellow soldiers and friends? To add to this, my wife has developed a huge heart for the Muslim community and has started and helped numerous outreaches that support and love on a culture that I have learned to despise. This tension has caused some conflict within our own household because I did not understand why. There are two questions that lingered through all of this. Why do these people do the things they do? And how do I support my wife who is called to serve and love them while I fight them? The answer didn't come until my deployment to Afghanistan last year. During this deployment, one of my last missions, I was standing next to a young soldier who was out with our special forces team on his very first mission when an incoming 81 millimeter mortar struck him out of nowhere. The next thing I remember was an extremely loud ringing in my ears and not being able to breathe or see because of the smoke and dust from the explosion. After a few seconds, the reality quickly set in. I immediately began to do what I was trained for. I assessed myself for injuries and then grabbed Private First Class Kirkpatrick and dragged him out of the impact zone to the medic for care. As I stood there, I watched the life slowly slip from his eyes as the medic worked tirelessly to keep him alive. But due to the seriousness of his wounds, we knew his fate had been met. My weapon and gear had taken the brunt of the impact, and I walked away almost completely unscathed, which left me with a burning question, why him and not me? I have spent many hours talking with chaplains and friends about the hate that dwells inside me toward a people group that honestly has no real understanding of the why either, on one recent instance, I found myself in tears with frustration and a deep, overwhelming feeling of pity toward the Afghan people who were fighting us. And that's when the questions finally made sense. 
The things Jesus said about loving your enemy began to come alive inside of me. As I sat there that day, my compassion grew, and I began to understand why my wife does what she does for Christ. If not us, then who? Our journey is not complete, and I am far from being like my wife, but the one thing I know is that Christ dwells in me, and that's a great start. I see why my wife loves them so much and why it is so important for me to support and love her and others, including my enemies, just like Christ. It's a daily battle, but in the end, the great commandment to love God and all others and the great commission to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ is all that matters. Matt. What a letter. Next weekend is Veterans Day weekend. And I just want to encourage you now, if you know any military active duty or veterans that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, next week would be a great week to bring them, to invite them to church. Jay Bell, our great commission consultant, is going to preach. He's also a Vietnam War veteran, and he told us in the staff meeting on Tuesday what he's going to preach about. He's going to preach about God's providence in all American wars, and we were amazed just hearing him talk about it. It's going to be super. But people who war against us, people who war against you and persecute you, whether that's at work or school or in the neighborhood or in your family, Jesus says that these people are not the enemies. They are victims of the enemy, as we are as well. And we must respond accordingly. Now, Jesus goes on here. Notice the second part of Jesus' instruction in verse 44. Remember, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we can't ignore that part. What's so big about praying for our enemies? What's the value of that part? Well, if you pray for them, here's what happens. Here's what God's going to do. He's going to open your heart for them. He's going to soften your heart for them. And your prayers are going to enact the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And we can't do this. We can't follow Jesus all the way. Give him our whole self. We can't do it without the Holy Spirit. And so we pray and he enacts the Holy Spirit. Prayer removes the poison from our own attitudes. Have you ever tried praying for your enemies? I have. And maybe you've had this experience too. I've prayed for my enemies, and I almost don't want to do it because it works so well, right? It's like, man, I can't be mad at them anymore, just almost instantly. God softens your heart and starts filling you with the Holy Spirit. It's not a bad thing. That pleases Jesus and glorifies Jesus. And so whoever you've thought of today, anyone that you've considered an enemy when you arrived here today, have you been praying for them? I'd encourage you to do, do so now while you pray for them, as Jesus says. Now, I want to give an important clarification at this point. Remember in uh, one of the sermons earlier in the series, and some of you might not have been here, we, 
we defined what forgiveness is, and we made some important clarifications about forgiveness. When we defined forgiveness, we made sure we understood that forgiveness is not letting people walk all over you. Yes, Jesus says, somebody hits you, turn the other cheek, but you got to take the whole counsel of the word here. It's not just letting people walk all over you, letting people take advantage of you. That may be appropriate, it may not. It's not necessarily letting people take advantage of you. It's not letting people continue abusing you. It's not staying in a dangerous situation. And so I declare then, and I'm going to declare now, if you're in any kind of a situation like that, each case is unique and different and you need counsel, come to the elders, come to me, a trusted mentor, and we'll talk through it. And I praise God, we've had those conversations this fall, and God is blessing these things all over the place. Jesus is moving us, though, to the fullness of heart for him. And this is almost like the last, it's the climax, this is one of the last things that's in the way of releasing our own torment along with being able to forgive and love the enemy. That's something that the world just doesn't do. Jesus is moving us beyond just being nice and not retaliating. This is where the pinnacle is. This is where Jesus climaxes in his sermon and in this forgiveness series. The ultimate action of Christ's love is to love our enemies. Carefully, wisely, with counsel, but he's, he's going after your heart. He's going after releasing you to freedom in him. And that's some of what we answer next. The next verses, Jesus tells us, verse 45 through 47, why? Why love our enemies? He just flat out says, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to explain this. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Here's just as you meditate on this verse, why do we love our enemies? Several reasons. One, it's what God does, and we become like Christ in this way. This is what our Father does. And this is how God treats us when we oppose him. This is a mark of being children of God. This is a mark of growing to maturity in Christ. God making it rain on the just and unjust is, is known as his common grace. Okay? Believers, non-believers, we enjoy his rain and, and we enjoy his sunshine that is, that he gives without distinguishing who is righteous and unrighteous. And Jesus says, if we love, if we are maturing in Christ, we will give our love, our choice to, to love selflessly without thinking whether they deserve it or not. Follow Jesus. And further, it's a testimony to others. It's a testimony. We don't want Tacitus to come back from the grave the historian, and write, this church was filled with people they are known for their hate. It's a, it's a testimony to the power and the beauty that is not found anywhere else in the world but in Christ. That's why. All right, what I'm saying here is, is and I want to I totally establish this truth, this is not natural. This is a totally different dimension than you'll ever hear anywhere else in the world. This is like, I'm going to use a Star Wars illustration, okay? All right. I know a lot of people are excited about that. This is so far out of our natural self, 
I want to recognize this. This is like when Han Solo and Chewbacca say, hit it into light speed, and they go to another dimension like that. That's what I'm talking about. How's that? You Star Wars fans connecting here? This is the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. This is what it takes to love our enemies. Jesus gives two other illustrations as you look in the next verses, verses 46 and 47. Okay, he said, this is what Andy read. This is, he's wanting to make sure we understand this. Like, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even, the tax collectors, those are the, the most hated people in the world. The, they're traitors. Don't, don't they even love those who love who reward you or who love you? And if you greet only your brothers, hey, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. But he's saying, if you're following me, if we only love the people who benefit us, we have every reason to be hated by the world. We're not filled with the Spirit. But if we choose to love everyone all the way to our enemies, we prove that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the source of love itself. Think of forgiving your enemies. This is more than hard. That's why I use the light speed. This is something that takes the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. It's unexplainable. It's supernatural. And yes, it is. That's exactly what Jesus has in mind. And it's what he has in mind when he says the last thing that he says in verse 48. This is the finale. Be perfect. And notice on your notes, I put some exclamation points and question marks. Be perfect? Let's see what he says. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is his finale. Now, this verse has caused a lot of headaches because it seems like Jesus is setting a standard for us that's impossible for us to achieve. What are you doing, Jesus? Here's what he's doing. Make no, make no mistake. This is the gospel. Perfection is absolutely impossible for us. It's impossible for sinful mankind. It was this unattainable standard that the law demanded. That's why the New Testament writers, Jesus and all the other writers, proclaimed that the law never saved anybody. It was only there to show you that you can't save yourself. But, but, a Christian is not someone who keeps the law perfectly. A Christian is somebody who knows that he can't. And he knows he's saved based on Jesus' perfection and then, once Jesus gives that to us, we strive and shoot to follow Jesus as much as we possibly can, enjoying his grace and forgiveness all along the way and treating others just in the same way that he treats us. As we do, God is glorified, the world is blessed and amazed, and we have the abundant life that freedom in Jesus provides us. Freedom and Forgiveness 70 times 7 series is finishing. But it's not over until we've done these next steps, these two next steps. First is examine whether Jesus' love is in my heart. Now's the time. You've, you've thought about your enemies today. Is there any sense of the possibility that you could forgive them and love them perfectly? Does that seem possible at all? If not, 
You may not have Christ in you. You may not be saved, and you need to think about that. You need a Savior. Without a Savior, we're spiritually dead and condemned to hell for all eternity. And emptiness now. But Jesus brings you to life and salvation when you ask and believe in him. And I encourage you to do that today if you haven't done that yet. And live where you do that today. So for some, that's a call to salvation. And we will rejoice that this is the day that you come to Christ and have a new spirit and a new life that can begin even seeing the possibility of this. For the rest of us, this is a call to let Jesus' love that's in us flow out of us to this most fullest extent expressed in our love and forgiveness and prayers for our enemies. Here's our chance. And I can't wait. And I can't wait to see, just see how this brings some radical change to our relationships and proclaiming of Jesus. The, the other one is, uh, this is a great, you know, you see this on your notes and on the screen. As we conclude this, this fall series on the topic of forgiveness, I'm going to encourage you to find a family member or a friend or a small group maybe uh, and share with each other based on all of our seven weeks in this series, what do I have remaining toward others, toward myself, particularly toward loving my enemies? What, what steps do I need to take now heading toward an abundant life of freedom in Jesus? Just the next steps that you need to take. For some, this is a, this is a long journey. Don't fall behind where Jesus wants you, though, and an accountability, a friend. Um, the Bible says that these are keys to, to our growth, to our freedom. So there you go. Others, myself, loving my enemies. Sarah, let's do it. Okay? This is our accountability. I'm asking my wife to do this when we get home. Let's pray as we conclude this series that it will guide these next steps. Lord God, it's been hard, it's been soul-searching, it's been worshipful knowing that what you've called us to do, only you can empower us to do, it only makes sense in you, so we turn to you, we thank you that you've done all this stuff to us already, make us victorious God, we pray in Jesus' powerful name and in his spirit. We worship you. Amen.